Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for March 2014. I am writer-critic, hyphen-knighthood impending, Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... Hi there, I'm writer-director, hyphen-four-hour sex epic, Paul Anthony Nelson. <laughs> and with us today is our very special guest... Hello, I guess I'm uh, hyphenate uh, Zach Hepburn, programmer, critic, dude around town, that guy on the street corner. Find him, get him, run him out of town. Uh, but thank you, gentlemen, for having me along. I, I feel uh, quite the privilege uh, to be in the esteemed halls of the, of the, of the hyphenates. It's a pleasure to have you, sir. Thank you very much. And uh, and pleasantries out of the way. Yes. Now. Let's, let's, <laughs> ding, that'll be ding. the last pleasant thing said. It's the last pleasant thing we're ever going to say to each other. So I've been wanting to tell you off for years. Like, so. Well, if we sound a little out of breath, listeners, it's because uh, we're film critics. And also that we just ran from the cinema we just tonight saw Noah, the new Darren Aronofsky film, his uh, dream project, one of several dream projects. I'm pretty sure The Fountain was a dream project as well. Mm. Uh, he has a lot of dreams. Why not? Yeah. So Batman Year One was a dream project. It, it was going to be for a while, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Man, The Fountain is actually my favourite Aronofsky film. I love yeah. that movie to bits. I'm glad so you guys just... are sitting on the same couch. Yes. <laughs> we're, we're, you know, we're, we're I'm deep, on a very different couch. We're, we're, we're deep, uh, you know, we're deep romanticists, so... <laughs> yeah. Well, this is uh, this does feel in that vein. Yeah, it's it's got a, a definitely that kind of sense of awe and wonderment that the fountain really has in it, and I feel that particularly the Clint Mansell score really is reminiscent of the fountain in, in a lot of ways to that sort of rousing uh, kind of build up. But I was just probably a little bit less enthralled by it than I was. With the fact okay, so let's just cards on the table. What, just what do we all think? Like, where are we on it on a scale of hate uh, to love? Uh, well, I, th- I thought it was pretty average. Well, I have to admit, I went into this with not a great deal of excitement. I wondered going in why it was his dream project. I've come out still wondering that to a certain extent, but there is one thing that the film, uh, there's a different spin that it puts on the Noah myth that I think appeals to him, and it makes it very much uh, an environmental tale Mm. and very much a story about man has sinned on the earth by destroying the earth and by killing animals and logging forests and mining and strip mining and destroying everything, and this is why the creator has decided to, you know, smite us. And that's kind of an interesting angle. There's some sequences that are quite visually audacious. There's one particular amazing shot where Noah is going up ladders on the ark Mm. and through levels and up ladders and and the shot doesn't break, and that's pretty impressive. And he he does that great sort of pixelation or stop motion going through the world. That's a brilliant technique. It looks Mm. really good. Going through as the water spreads through the world and also there's an evolutionary sequence. Which is a nice bit of having it both ways, too. Uh, (laughs) uh, this This is the man who made a... An incredibly Jewish film about maths. Let's not forget. <laughs> yeah. So he likes he likes uh, combining the yeah. science with the myth. Yeah. yeah. I, well, I get the feeling now. I don't know if I'm speaking out of my ass here, but what I know of Aronofsky is he's Jewish and he grew up with scientific parents. Like his parents were actually that does s- ring a bell. Yeah. Scientists or doctors with some description, so it does fit. But I think there's. I think a lot of the film just doesn't work. A lot of the film just. There's parts that feel like kind of warmed over '80s fantasy film early on, in particular. It kind of. With the big rock creatures. Well, I was going to say, it's the, the rock biter has returned from, yes. re- from retirement <laughs> to, uh, to, to, to star in a pedigree Hollywood picture. Uh, yeah, look, I mean, it's, it's interesting, you know, without getting uh, too heavy into how the film is sort of like narratively staged, but, you know, for me it feels like there's very much two films mm. in the one film. And I 
was taken out of the movie when the major sort of flood occurs. And I really wanted that to be a much more of a kind of film-spanning journey mm. versus what we get in the second act, which is much more of a kind of interpersonal kind of take on Noah's faith and how he's dealing with that. So while that's a very meaty way to deal with the kind of throes of what the character's dealing with, I, I did really enjoy the kind of build-up to the disaster. So I wanted a little bit more of that. See, I was almost the other way around. Yeah, I was yeah, bored yeah. stupid for the first half, and then once they're on the boat, Noah starts kind of taking his extreme view of what yeah. God is telling him, or the creator is telling him to do. Yeah. I start to get more interested. Okay. Um, and then everybody gets really overwrought and shouts at each other. And yeah, well, that's, I think that's what I struggle with with, with, the, with the kind of third act of the film, is it mm. does seem a lot more kind of, we're acting oh, now. God. So um, you, you guys weren't really enthralled by Noah's Ark. Hey. Uh, I, I think it was going to be, uh, they, they named one of his sons after uh, Russell Crowe's acting style. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> well, which one? It could have been either of Could them. have been any of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> Jesus. Well, I have to be Goldilocks here because if one of you like the first half and the other like the second half, I'm, uh, I, I, lo- I actually love this film. Whoa! I really loved it. And I could see, I, I think it helps going in looking at it from the perspective of, Aronofsky really wanted to make this film. And so for me, it was like, why did he want to make it? And I actually assumed that it was uh, based on nothing at all, that he, he wanted to rail against the type of um, biblical epic mm. from, from the golden age of Hollywood. Uh, and, but I think he's, I, I think he loves that. Mm. I, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say he loves uh, the Ten Commandments. And mm. he loves that old school because this is a spin on it. This isn't a reaction to, no, against no. it. Yeah, in it a lot like of ways, yeah. it's very traditional. It is, mm. yeah, and it feels like I, I definitely agree. With, like he's he's almost like creating a kind of evolution of that, but not in any sort of way that's trying to change it. He's just going to present his own stamp mm. on that classic sort of filmmaking. And he's a classic filmmaker in a lot of ways, I think. Mm. And you've seen that kind of later in his career with Black Swan and, and The Fountain, how that really has kind of informed kind of classical sort of filmmaking. One of the things I, I quite liked is that Aronofsky is a Jew making a biblical epic because the Old Testament is a nasty. <laughs> and so many, I, and I'm not even going to get into the Passion of the Christ thing here, but so many biblical epics are quite clinical and and relatively, they don't get into the nastiness. I mean, God is a prick in the Old Testament. Mm. He is like, I mean, you want to talk about a, a 180 character uh, yeah. retcon. He's bipolar. He's totally bipolar. I love you, I hate you, I love you, I hate you, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I love that like Aronofsky's grabbing onto that going, no, it was, it was nasty. These stories mm. were nasty. And particularly, the I think the sequence when um, Noah tells the story on board the ark where he starts telling the story of how they got there... Mm. And, and we get, get just a slight glimpse in the silhouette. You can almost make out a modern day. It's like yeah. moving through to our yeah. time. Yeah. And that is a very, very Jewish thing in, in that you don't just tell a Bible story. You say, well, what relevance does that have for me now? Because that actually took me out of it a little bit. It felt like breaking the fourth wall a bit for me. That, that was what made it for me. Because oh, I was wow. like, this is Passover. Yeah. We're, having, we're having a Seder dinner. <laughs> and Aronofsky <laughs> said... Nobody lit a candle. <laughs> <laughs> I love the post-apocalyptic sort of wasteland uh, atmosphere. You know, I agree. Like a lot of biblical epics have this almost kind of like oil-painted pastel sort of feel to it. And I just think that that almost Mad Maxian sort of quality at the start of it is, <laughs> is, is great. I really enjoyed that about it. And it, it feels like 
it feels much more believable mm. in a way. See, I love your um, optimism. You do? Because you went Mad Max. Yeah. I, yeah. I was watching the first hour thinking, this looks like The Postman. <laughs> just, 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 oh. It was scenes, that, individual scenes that jumped out, out of yeah. me more than anything else. I love Mansell's score, but yeah, overall, just didn't work for me. All right. In that case, let's switch gears and go to Wajda. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna, I was gonna try for a hole from the Jews to the Arabs, but um, I didn't yeah. think that would end Let's well. Let's cross the girls' trip to. No. In a podcast where I've already said God is a prick, I was worried that that would push me over the line. <laughs> so, Wajda was, I think I mentioned as one of my favorite films of last year because it's already a myth. It's now on general release uh, in Australia. Came out this month. Just a perfect film. It's the first film from Saudi Arabia. It's directed by a woman, so it's already got that cool political edge to it. But. Uh, that doesn't a great, great film make. And I was thinking about how um, there's this sort of art house film that really plays on bicycle desire. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I think there's a genre from, you know, De Seeker's Bicycle Thieves to the Dardenne Brothers, The Kid with a Bike. I think you could, you could program a whole festival based on downtrodden kid desires mundane metaphorical object <laughs> as a bicycle. Um, and we, well, you know, we can always put Pee Wee's... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yes! <laughs> you always put that in there as well, too. I mean, that's... Um, uh, uh, yes. Tim Burton neorealist. Exactly, yeah. So, yeah, it's a red bike, so... Uh, uh, we're going to go back and do Burton again. Yeah, that's yeah, that's yeah. changed my whole perspective. <laughs> it's so funny and sweet. This is what hits me about it, is how funny it is. Like, Wajda herself, she's such a, a uh, force of nature and she makes me laugh so much, but you don't, never feel like they're under, there's this truth to it and you never feel like they're underselling the danger or the oppression. It feels very real to me and it's the sort of film, you know, you just want to watch again the minute it's over. I, I think it's perfect. I didn't quite have that strong a reaction. No. I thought it was a little... Like, being a film, you know, shot in a, in a fairly nascent film culture, like, they barely have cinemas in, in Saudi Arabia. Not, you know, mm. this is the first film shot entirely in the state. And so by that consequence, it is a little rough around the edges at times, I felt. I felt the pacing kind of lags a bit. But, and I didn't find it as consistently funny. What really impressed me, I think it, it's such a strong piece of writing... Because every single character in that film is in their own film. Yeah. And yes. every single character you feel like you start wondering what's happening to them, what's going to happen to them, mm. what's made them this That's way, a good what's point, there. Yeah. And the film is like, it, it feels like an octopus. And it feels like there's so many tentacles leading out to other intriguing and sad stories. Yeah, from the little, you know, from Selma, the 13-year-old girl who's been married off to a 20-year-old mm. to, you know, their, their teacher who claims to have been, like, watched watch it once to... The toy shop owner, I mean, yes. you know, yeah. so I thought he was a great character and just that, I mean, for me, you know, it really encapsulated the, the joy of a toy store. You know, for when I, when I was a kid going to the toy store, it was like, you know going on holiday and it's just yeah it really i really picked that up when i was was it just it's so well executed those scenes in that toy store are just so well and him being the one that gives her the hope yeah exactly you know got on a layaway for some kid yeah it's just a great little piece of filmmaking and and the little boy who's in love with her i love him yeah he's best sidekick ever (laughs) because it gives it gives you a bit of hope because he clearly respects her Mm. but you wonder is that all going to be taught out like Taught yes. out of him, educated out of him by the time he gets older. By the so there's a bit of, and by the customs and yeah. Yeah, there's a bit of fear there, but he's so nice throughout the whole film. I, uh, my favourite line in the film line, it seemed to really sum up where, has, oh God, I've 
forgotten her name. Is it Hasai Almansour? Is that the right pronunciation? I, I can't even remember the, the, the writer director. <laughs> Who are you? Um, <laughs> but uh, she really kind of gets to what she's getting at is when Abdullah offers to give her give watch to his bike. Yes. And she turns to him and says, but how will we race? I just love that. And it's a film that really hit me cumulatively. Even halfway through, like I said, the pacing is a bit kind of... And for a while, I was kind of like, uh, you know, I, I'm, I see where this is coming from and, and I'm absorbed and I love this character, but where is this kind of mm. going? And then uh, by the time we get to the recital and then watch that lays her little... Smackdown, I won't say what, but it just floored me by that point, and I was just so emotionally involved. I do feel like having qualified praise of uh, The Raid 2, Barandal, makes me feel, puts me on the negative side, because <laughs> people have been flipping out for this, for quite literally in the film, but um, I have a lot of issues with it. I'm, I'm actually quite surprised it's been as, as universally loved as, really? it, as it has been. Yeah. Who's the... Yeah, I've been hearing more like you and I, more like this is... Yeah. Good, like had fun, but I think with the screenings out of Sundance mm. was just they, they were well, you obviously know. South by Southwest too yes. had a very good pickup. Sundance, they're watching you know 20 somethings wearing you know knitted jumpers in country, you <laughs> know, mining towns. Really want someone hit with a hammer, yeah, exactly. That's why you're excited. But I've heard a lot of people calling it the greatest action film of all time, like, there's a lot of that going out, and I understand that in the age of CGI action. To see something visceral and real is is it's, it's understandable people would react to that. Like I love the first one. Like I really yeah, love yeah, the first one, yeah. and it's I find it such a bizarre sequel. Like I love that um, uh, Gareth Evans wanted to do something completely different, mm. and I respect that. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like this is just the same actor from the first film doing something new. Like I, yeah. I felt there was I felt there was a setup at the end of the last film I wanted resolved. Yeah, and instead there's this um, serpentine plot, which didn't engage me at all. Yeah. It was trying to yeah. be the Godfather, maybe. Yeah, well, I think that's um, it's something that I think we all kind of share that opinion, I yeah. think. Um, and it's something that, I, I mean, I, you know, I'm not the sharpest tool in the, in the hammer box, but I had no idea who some of the characters were oh. until they'd already been and gone, but then right. realised that they were really important. And then, uh, look, I think it's very commendable, mm. and I love the scope of it. I think mm. the scope is great, and I, I do like the contrast between having that intimate scope of the first one versus this sort of grandiose scope of the, of the second one. But maybe there's too much of a good thing mm. yeah. in it. Um, that might be my it's stance. Very long. Sometimes it is more yeah. is just more. Yeah. I, too, I really admire the fact that Evans has tried to go big with this yeah. and tried to make his Godfather 2, Dark Knight, you know, let's expand on things. Yeah. But the thing that made the raid work the most for me was it's the great white shark of fight pictures. Yeah. It's 100 minutes and it's just... Yeah. It's just a battering ram that never stops. And it's a simple setup. It's yeah. such a simple story. You've got to get to the top of the building. Yeah, yeah. It's, it. it's a it's yeah. a video game setup. Yeah. It's yeah. like you're stuck in a building. You've got to get to the top. You got to kill as many people as you can. Out there yeah, and, and they're going to try and kill you, and yeah. you just got to get them out of the way. So, it, that's, yeah. 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 and I think that there's a way to retain that without repeating yourself. Mm. And I think it's very telling that this script was originally a sequel to another film he made before the raid, yeah. and he rewrote it to be a sequel to The Raid. And I think that sh- it shows that it yeah. has no relation. No, yeah. I, no I mean, it does show that it Early does. on in the film, you know, there's these great sort of prison sequences, which I think really retain that sort of claustrophobic nature of, of the first mm. film. But once you get outside the prison kind of walls, it does go into this kind of sprawling crime opus. But it does have the best fight in mud 
Yes. So, so that, that is a great sequence. Yeah, so almost verging on slapstickness. Like, mm-hmm. So I think that's um, I, something. If you Look, if you like <laughs> seeing people get thrown over things and hit in the face, you really should go and see this movie, though, because it has yeah. more hits per minute, I think, than any. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff. Yeah, so. I'm completely torn between two feelings with this film, because one... The sprawling plotline, while commendable that he's tried to do something bigger, feels like a compendium of every crime movie you've ever yeah, seen. Yeah. So, and, and, and not even crime movie, like every direct-to-video action movie you've yeah. seen. Like, it feels like plots from Seagal films and plots yeah. from... We've got know, the canon library and we've pushed it yes. into the... Yeah, so, <laughs> and it's yeah. got that real kind of triteness to it. Yeah. Now, look, there, there's a lot of action in the film that feels kind of ported over from the first one. There's a lot of fight, but there's stuff that's also completely new. But the thing about the Raid films and the thing about Gareth Evans that I really want to put a point on here is that he's the first action filmmaker in forever that has me watching his films and going, how did they do that? Mm, yeah. Like, space seems to contract and expand yeah. within the frame. I don't know how he does it. Yeah, yeah like, I, and I, it's... I don't think this is necessarily the best action film of all time. Uh, time. I will say that Gareth Evans is the most interesting action director working at the moment. Certainly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, that's, that's high praise, yeah. without being too gushy, right? Yeah, <laughs> definitely. And no. we're not too down on that. No, yeah. that's, that, that's uh, you know, and, and like I said, any film that has a hammer and a bat in it, force, forcibly entering someone's cranium, for action fans... <laughs> You've got your ticket price there already, so, you know, but... Um, Look, yeah. that's the thing. Actionistas are going to love it. Raid 3, I understand, goes for about 48 hours. So, <laughs> but we'll see. We'll wait for that. Of course it will. It's yeah. its own festival. Yeah. Now, what the Raid 2 does for action, Nymphomaniac, don't know. Uh, <laughs> that's a different hammer. <laughs> yeah. Paul, you've not, you've not seen this. Certainly a different bat. And, yeah, I'm going to go in the corner and cry now because I'm a big Lars von Trier fan and I've not managed to see this yet. We're actually getting parts one and two together yep. in Australia, which is interesting. I think we're actually also getting the cut version. And I think the reason that no one's kicked up a stink is that that that's sort of the, the carrot on the stick has been parts one and two yep. in a compendium. Yep. <laughs> so we've seen the whole thing. It's kind of exciting, particularly for you know viewers down under, to be able to, to get a film that the states are seeing the trailer of in a lot of ways, and other mm. countries are seeing the trailer of. And I, I really kind of love that. I I adored this film. Yeah. Um, I really did. I think it's, um, you know, Von Trier for me is a requisite prank monkey. And I think what, <laughs> what he's doing nowadays is he's, in particular this film, is he's really playing on what you think Lars Von Trier is going to do. Mm. And then he starts to do that. it. And then he completely pulls a rug out from underneath you and goes, "Well, no, you were having fun with that. We're going to show you what this is really about." So, and I, I, the, I think the performances in it are amazing. I mean, it's so great to see Christian Slater back on the big screen. Mm. I really actually enjoyed him in this film, yeah. um, and I just think Charlotte Gainsbourg. You know, she. What else can she do? She's you great. Know, she's absolutely incredible in every role that she's in, in this kind, of, and particularly in you know this quote unquote sort of depression trilogy that Nymphomaniac is supposedly the, the final piece of, mm. uh, just to see her kind of morph into this uh, you know, actress that has such a, a, one assumes, great dialogue with Von Trier um, is, is just great to see. Mm. So, How about yourself, Lee? Did you enjoy the film? Well, I enjoy is probably the right word. Did you, uh, <laughs> did you I, live uh, it? I did not. You did not? I, uh, I'm not a Von Trier fan. Okay, but so... Melancholia, I called one of the best films of 2011. Yep. So he can win me over. Okay. It is possible. With Nymphomaniac, I uh, would like to call him out as a coward. Okay. I think he's a goddamn coward. Okay. And I'm stating this right now because I think the sex and violence is all there to fool us. Whenever this film veers towards sincerity, 
or any sort of vulnerable moment on the on the part of Von Trier, yep. we cut back to the the present day the framing device, the yep. narration framing device, yep. and he undercuts it with a self aware cynical aside. Yep. It's a get out of jail free card, as uh, Charlotte Gainsbourg and um, uh, Stellan Skarsgård. Stellan Skarsgård, yeah. yeah, Joe and Seligman, they fall over themselves to acknowledge. Uh, you know the coincidence that keeps happening. Yeah, yeah. And they fall over themselves to acknowledge it. It's cowardly writing, and it's using this veil to protect himself from criticism, and it, it doesn't work. It's like guy, you know, when you see an old film and you sit in a cinema, yep. and there's somebody there who laughs at all the anachronisms. Yeah. I feel like Von Trier is there next to us laughing. Yep. He's the one laughing in his own film, lest we think that he has a sincere bone in his body. And it's frustrating because there is genuine greatness in this film, I think. Yeah. And there is so much potential and promise. And uh, you, know, you know the adage of uh, a great ending will save any film? Mm. I'm not going to say anything, Paul, don't worry. But this has a great ending. Mm. And it was so great, it nearly fooled me into thinking, okay. what a great film. Yeah, and I was like, no, no, hang on to remember all the things that drove you angry for the last it's, it's, four it's the hours. The last one, a sleight of hand is happening. Yeah, exactly. So. And it drove me nuts because if it was all bad, if there was no potential in there, I wouldn't care. Yep. But I, there's so much greatness in there, and it's so close, and he keeps undercutting it. And that's how I feel about it. You felt much the same way about Antichrist, didn't you? Not as passionately. I felt that the Chaos Reigns moment was a cheat and a wank, and it was him being terrified of people laughing yeah. at him without him being in on the joke. And this is that to the nth extreme. It's certainly one of the more tonally odd Von Trier films. Like, I think, you know, Volume 1 has quite a lot of comedy in it, I think, in many ways, and that's something that a lot of people may not be too kind of comfortable with when they go in for it because it's being marketed in such a way that, you know, it's like, this is an infomaniac, this is Von Trier, he's going to, like, destroy your brain. Yeah. And I don't think the film really wants to do that in a lot of ways. And I, I do agree with you. There is a lot of kind of setup, and then some, sometimes he kind of just pulls you away and he doesn't actually give you what you think you want. I don't know if that's in, it's an intentional thing to mm. annoy the audience or to sort of deny them what they presumably brought their ticket for. So I'm just willing to call it cowardly. Cowardly, there you go. So. Oh, and before, we, we have to, we, we can't finish without acknowledging Sheila Booth. Yep. Who was, uh, I, my, my, my theory is that uh, before each take, he said, try one of the British accents. Yep. Doesn't have to be, <laughs> doesn't have to be, compl- you don't have to work very hard at it. Just try it for this take and we might not use it. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying no one's allowed to make fun of Dick Van Dyke ever again. <laughs> ever again. Well, uh, <laughs> Booth has now taken the, uh, the mantle oh of, my of Dick Van Dyke-isms. And, so. I, I, and I, think, I think he's doing that on purpose. I think Von Trier is like, he hates, my theory is he hates LaBeouf and yep. he's doing this to make him look like an idiot. And it worked. <laughs> you know, then my kind of like final remark on the film, like, you know, I actually very much enjoyed it, uh, but uh, could have done with a little bit more Udu Kia. There's, yeah. there's or every film, every, every film, every film could, do, but uh, Udu yeah. makes a, a small appearance. But I would have, you know, quite happily taken more Udu. But um, I, I will agree. We we found common ground. Excellent. If that's what Lars Montreux has given us, Lee, that's his parting gift to us. <laughs> so for our second segment, we're going to discuss the issue of cult films and. 
what is the cult film's place in our modern culture? Because in the 70s and where, when the Midnight Movie began, like we'd had exploitation films before that, but, but cult films really became a thing with the Midnight Movie in the 70s. And it was a way where audiences would almost discover a movie by themselves mm. or somebody would program a movie at a bizarre time and a completely unexpected number of people would show up and all of a sudden it's like we've struck gold here and they keep showing it and soon it's been years and they're continuing midnight showings. That was back when films would run for years. Like yeah. It's inconceivable yes. at the moment. Exactly. And that continued throughout the, 70, uh, throughout the 70s, the 80s, and even the 90s. And now, you know, obviously repertory cinemas are dying on the vine. There's very few left. We've got cult nights at cinemas, um, the kind of things like you yourself run, Zach. Yep. But these days, and I know this from being a filmmaker as well, that like when you're writing a script, you're forced to think of the way you're going to market it. And with social media marketing and grassroots marketing and studio carpet bomb marketing, every project is being niche marketed from birth now. Yeah. And things are being marketed as cult classics before mm, we've seen yep. them. And it's like, this is going to be a cult classic because it has these certain elements of violence or sex or, or transgression yeah. or what have you. And I guess what I'm asking here is, is there any potential for the audience to discover and anoint actual cult films anymore? Yeah, it's a really good question. How I sort of curate cultastrophe, I like to give new films a bit of play as well, mm-hmm. but I have no doubt in my mind that they may never become cult classics. I think cult classics is now a term that is completely null and void. It makes no sense. It's been a bit ill-appropriated um, too. Really too. And, you know, even when what has been defined as cult classics, you know, were they? I mm. mean, they were just films that people liked mm. uh, en masse. I mean, it, it, just, it was a very easy grouping way for the video store to yep. put titles that don't fit in any other genre. And if you were going to see a film at the cinema that was like, you were going to the Rocky Horror, or you were going to, like, you know, a Razorhead, you weren't going because it was a cult film. You were just going because you heard good word of mouth about it, or you were mm. going because, hey, this is just something weird I want to see. Well, what's the definition of a cult classic? Because the, the thing that comes to my mind is that a mainstream hit is something a lot of people like, mm. and a cult classic is something a small number of people love. And, and that's the thing, too, Willow, when you mentioned Rocky Horror and a Razorhead, that had that repeat business. People would dress up and go, yep. or, or not dress up, but just go back yep. heaps of times. Like, I saw A Clockwork Orange 72 times or yep. whatever. Yeah, they have those kind of stories. Yeah, there's um, a lot of facets to the, the branding of cult or the, or the definition of it, particularly in, in cinema exhibition. And, you know, the first one of that being the very definition of the word cult, you know, a, a group of people mm-hmm. coming together to experience something and then indoctrinating other people right, in, yeah, yeah. into it. Yes. And I think that's something that's the real caveat there is like you see something and it's almost like it's a it's it's a film virus yes. in a way. You know, you want to spread it to as many people as you can, as many like-minded people as you can and sort of get them into the fold so they can then pass it on to the next person. Mm. So I think that level of a quote-unquote cult classic is probably the most fertile aspect of it because mm. people do kind of go back to these films or try and, if you see a David Lynch film, I'm, I'm going to go and look at you know another filmmaker who's had an influence on him or has mm. been influenced by Lynch. It kind of gets that sort of virulent way of passing on to it. And generally, you know, the filmmakers that are influenced by other filmmakers usually work within the same sort of weird... Mm. I hate that word as well, but, yeah. you know, um, offbeat, offbeat or, yeah. sort of track. So this idea of target producing and target marketing a cult classic, I think, is, is something that can't be done. Yeah. And when you do try to do it, it fails miserably. Well, you're talking so, about midnight movies yeah. and... 
the documentary Midnight Movies talks about how a film that we'll be talking about very soon, El Topo, yep. after it was a cult hit at midnight, uh, John Lennon saw it, loved it, and, and you know made it a marquee thing yep. in, in, in New York, promoted <laughs> the hell out of it, and it failed. Yep. Mm. And... It's the, it's the idea that the, the moment it's owned by the mainstream, it stops being cool. So cult yeah. hits are defined as much by people who don't know them. And, mm-hmm. I, and I wonder if the internet has uh, ruined that. You know, the, the idea that uh, with social media in less than 24 hours, something can be discovered, uh, lauded, backlash, defended and discarded. You know, the, the shelf life is so quick. And we use the, the internet. We love the internet uh, because it can help us discover these things. But it's not an organic discovery, so... And I think, too, you know, the whole part of that organic discovery, and I totally agree with you, Lee, that, and I was going to say, when you were speaking for you know, I think the internet, in a way, has killed the cult film, or, or killed mm. the cult film viewing experience, because mm. you can go on, you know, a huge repository of, of, of sites, you know, be they legal or illegal, and find cult films, which you... Well, I grew up in a small country town, and I used to, like, absolutely devour issues of Fangoria mm. and try and go around, you know, inner city video stores to find these films. And that was all part of the progress. That was part of being able to find these films that you'd heard so much good word of mouth about. Cult films need, in my opinion, two things to be prosperous. A great title yeah. and really strong word of mouth. Like, have you seen this? Yeah, this yeah. thing's insane. You need to see this. So uh, with the internet has certainly killed off that word of mouth contingent, I think, in many ways, even though it ironically shouldn't because mm-hmm. it is a forum to be able to reach more people. But that concept of being able to almost trade kind of filmic blows with your peers completely goes out the window mm-hmm. when you um, you get on the internet. It's because you lose the discovery. You lose, yeah, and, and, and it's... Like the active so, discovery. Everything's so it. accelerated. Yeah. You know, yeah. Everything's just so picked over and, th- 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 yeah. and you've played the tennis match in five seconds. I feel like the last genuine cult film may have been The Room. I was... I have that exact sentence written down in front of me, yeah. Because that was actually screened, pri- like, privately in LA. It was yeah. something that comedians would mm. screen to each yeah. other and then they invited their movie star buddies and then it kind of got the, out to so that. So that discovery element is really evident there and Mm. also you know i think another integral part of kind of cult success in a way at least on a larger scale as much as cult films are marvel to watch at home with your buddies on the couch to being able to go into a cinema and see a cult film late at night with a group of people who haven't seen it before yeah is, is really Being indoctrinated inf- by exactly, enthusiastic you know, people who have. Exactly. Yeah. Um, is really infectious. And yeah. I think um, that whole kind of eventized screening culture that, you know, a lot of the majors are trying to roll out now. Mm. Arguably, you know, was The Room was doing it ages ago. You know, you would mm. go there and you would get spoons to throw. Yeah. yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and I think There was a list of things, what to do and when to do it. Exactly, mm. you know. Um, so that brings out that whole audience participation thing again. Mm. And I know... A lot of more sinuous cult lovers hate that, yeah. but, but mm. then it also too like you can watch a normal movie in a normal movie theater and uh, the week. I love a bit of audience participation in so many ways yeah. because it really does kind of cement that communal. But it's vibe. when you get a sheet like of paper effect. telling you how to, how and when that it kind of feels a bit less organic. It, yeah, this the script of being part of the film in a way of mm. having your own unique way of legally in a way. Mm. So, yeah. I can't think of a better film, but you know sure. the the. the the, the filmmaker giving you permission to do this at this point because you're actually going to bring the film into a new paradigm for the audiences around you. Mm. It's it's very rare that that happens. And to be fair, the I remember seeing the Rocky Horror Picture Show mm. VHS 
the 21st anniversary. This was back in 96. And that had a featurette or something, um, or a slip of paper or something that said much the same thing right. that told you various things about what to do at what queue. So that's not a there new thing. There you go. Thing. I didn't so, know that. Yeah. Um, and obviously you have the, the, the smell, you know, smellorama, odorama, polyester. You yes. know, you had the time to be them when they would come up on the screen. Yeah. You would sniff at that point that's and stuff. That's right. But I, I, I would say that the room not only was the last cult hit it is the last cult hit like i don't think and unless the internet collapses yep. that mm. nothing's going to be underground for too yeah because i guess the room kind of took off in yeah. in la in the early 2000s or yep. mid 2000s before the torrents and all that sort of thing really began Definitely. to explode mm. into the mainstream and itself. also the, the the wave of nostalgia that mm. a lot of you know, film fans and and media fans currently have. You know, this is why we're seeing a, a rise in the adoration of the VHS tape and mm. a rise in the adoration yeah. of the Grindhouse seventies experience. You know, in in that time, like no one was going to those movies to to watch them. They were going to get out of the cold or go <laughs> make out with someone. They were oh, I, get, I think they're asleep. Yeah, I think there was generally. I think it was like five people there to actually watch the movie. Yeah, and I remember you know, one of the sessions that I played quite. <laughs> A few years ago, when I played uh, the uh, At Midnight I Take Your Soul, and I think you were saying you had the most authentic grindhouse experience because I think there was like, you know, two people, one guy fell asleep, and there was another lady doing a knitting. Yeah, or something. <laughs> and, it was and, amazing. Yeah, Audible so. snoring from one end, knitting from the other. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you, and you just eating it up in the middle. So, um, <laughs> yes, yeah, a little slice of 42nd Street, right? Yeah. Here. But you know, I guess, you know, I'm just, I just really love that idea of being able to have how, how I first sort of like, you know, came to, to seeing cult films at the cinema was I used to go to movie marathons at the old uh, Valhalla. It felt like you shouldn't be doing what you were doing. Yeah. And I, that's, I kind of got hooked on that. And uh, that just kind of fed through. I know Acme were doing Freaky Fridays for a very long time yeah. too. And I saw some great stuff there, like Cisco Pike with Gene Hackman and Chris Christopherson, which is a sort of like... Gene Hackman running around town chasing Chris Christopherson while Harry Dean Stanton's asleep in the back seat. You know, that, <laughs> Was that the audience or the movie? Uh, the, both. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, people had a script to follow. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I just can't remember seeing anything like that before mm. all these films, and now I just want to be able to show them to people. Yeah. And that's, that's something that I think in order for cult to sustain the sort of level of popularity it has in the moment, it almost has to kind of die off in a way and then reinvent itself and come back. Mm. Um, this so. kind of leads me to one possible lifeline for the cult experience. The only thing I can think of, it brings me to titles like Southland Tales, yep. films that flopped mm. and were kind of consigned to the dustbin of culture. And yet some people have kind of gone to some in a contrary way, some have just discovered it and, and it's really clicked with them. And suddenly you find out gradually on the internet through little conversations with people that they really love this film and that they've watched it dozens of times. And I feel like that's the closest thing we get to. The well, I, th I think part of that might be the fact that back before the internet and oversharing everything... All for a film to be underground, it just had to be uh, undiscovered. These days, to combat the sheer amount of information we have, a film has to be a failure or a perceived failure, like Southland yeah. Tales mm -hmm. is considered what a flop and a terrible film. Uh, you know, it flopped on every possible level. 
and that's when it starts becoming an underground hit. Like you have to you have to push back even further before mm. it can be loved. Yeah, people just yeah. completely write it off. Uh, why would I bother? And then you have a couple of few champions kind of passing it on. Like, well, hang on, this person actually kind of knows what they're talking about. Mm. Maybe I need to reinvestigate it. So mm. it's like they've got a boom because everything booms because everything's loud on yeah. the yeah. internet. So it's got a boom and bust. Yeah, and then after it's busted and all the uh, the ashes, that's a new on. cult. Yeah, there you go. Picking through the ashes of flops. You kind of have to ride the cult wave and see where it takes you, and hopefully it'll take you to Paradine Stand, which is where <laughs> I'd like to go Sleeping right now. Sleeping in the back. Exactly. <laughs> All right, Zach, please tell us, whom have you picked for your... Hellas for Hyphenates Filmmaker of the Month. Dramatic pause. Uh, it's funny enough that we're talking about cult films. We're going to talk about the cult zen grandmaster flash <laughs> of... <laughs> Every cult film ever made, Alejandro Jodorowsky, who, you know, uh, Only God Forgives was dedicated to and created possibly the midnight movie Patient Zero, which was... Uh, <laughs> it really was. El Topo, um, which, is, as we mentioned previously, you know, was, was championed by Mr. Lennon and, mm. uh, and Yoko Ono, and so much so that Lennon gave Jodorowsky uh, a tremendous sum of money to make Holly Mountain, which was his possibly, I feel, slightly more superior uh, film to uh, El Topo, um, but we can get on that in a moment. But uh, no, anyone who knows Jodorowsky's cinema will know that it's it's not your standard three-act structure. It's not really, is it? You don't generally <laughs> buy a popcorn when you're watching it. Uh, you generally feel that... It, or if you do buy popcorn, it yeah. sort of turns into a childhood trauma and bugs and... Yeah, bugs and like yeah. lizards wearing hats sort of come out yeah. of it and then you sort of like throw it in someone's face and shoot them. So... Yeah. And then you're covered in bees. And then you're covered in bees and then you set yourself on fire. <laughs> so it's... Um, yeah, look, he's not for the faint of heart, uh, no. but he's also kind of an eternal optimist and he really has a, a poetic sort of take on the mundane world and you know he's obviously a, a, a surrealist uh, but he's also uh, an alchemist and he's uh, a friend of mine who's a, a programmer in New York has had his tarot cards read by him okay <laughs> so um, and he's also one of those you know rare beasts of a filmmaker who hasn't made many movies in a career that is so incredibly long-winded but he had a 23 year gap of filmmaking in there some so. kind of record for a feature filmmaker because mm. what oh, yeah, it beats Malik it, me- so, it beats Malik yeah. it beats Lucas yep 23 years between feature films well, yeah it's seven uh, completed features yep between 1968 and 2013 yeah and it's, it's odd and then like his only short was 11 years before his first feature yeah yep Takes his time. Most of those uh, features he's acted in as yes. as the central role, which <laughs> then takes on this strange sort of performative aspect as well. So it's, he's just a um, obviously anyone who kind of knows his filmmaking too knows that one of the core kind of refinements of a Jodorowsky film is kind of like Tim Burton in a way is daddy issues. You know, yes. yeah, you, you have to have some daddy issues to go into the, the Jodorowsky film, and this is it's kind of interesting because looking at his sort of autobiography in a way too, he. Um, pretty much uh, says that his uh, mother was uh, was effectively raped mm-hmm. by uh, his father and he was the, the kind of outcome of that and that's why the mother had no love for him or couldn't couldn't love him in many ways and you feel that you know such a tragic story 
really that pathos comes out in all his films in so many ways. Like yeah. every film he made has this incredibly huge heart to it. And even though, yeah, you'll get the sort of like, you know, surrealist lizards jumping off things and the, and the crazy hairstyles and the, and the rampant violence, at the end of it, there is a, a real sense of loss and longing yeah. that really permeates through all his films. That's something that I think is really quite beautiful in, in many ways. Mm. So, I mean, he, I think he's the most beautiful cult filmmaker that you've up there with you know, the way he can get some poetic imagery on screen. It very rarely rivaled, I think, by cult filmmakers. And I, I, you know, I hesitated with use genre because for me, Jurassic has no genre. He's mm. playing in an absolute ballpark of his own and no one can even go near him, I think, in many ways. So. I find... Uh, I, I'd seen El Topo before, but none of his other films, and I, fi- I, I found going through them, I was fascinated by them. Yeah. And when you tell me what he's doing on paper, I think I would love that without feeling connected to them, mm. particularly... Uh, I mean, that great first trilogy of films, you know, oh, I'm, I'm calling it a trilogy because they feel so connected, yeah. like Fando and what, Why Liz? Fando and Liz, sure. Yeah, in 68, El Topo in 1970, and The Holy Mountain in 1973. They were films I was fascinated by mm. but felt zero connection to, yeah. I, which is weird because I love that type of surrealism. It's, um, yeah, you know, he, he sort of, obviously, you know, Looking a little bit at his background too, he kind of trained under you know uh, Marcel Marceau, yeah, uh, and he and so particularly you know uh, Fando and Liz has that real sort of mime aspect to it. And I, for me too, Fando and Liz is possibly one of the more impenetrable. Jorowski films in many ways. It feels kind of like a razor head for Lynch, you know, like it's the absolute creative wasteland of, of, of everything that was going to spurt from later. That is like, you know, the seeds of just were sowing and it's, it's you know, shot in 4.3, very kind of high contrast, 16 millimeter. Black and white. Black and white, you know, the, the kind of animalistic natures of all these films. There's a scene where, you know, all the sound is kind of drops out and replaced with animal sounds. Mm. He likes um, bees a lot. I noticed he, that. Yeah. yeah. You hear it insects fade right. up quite yeah. a lot. Yeah. He's really kind of that, that kind of primal aspects are, uh, is, is a huge part of his work and that, and that really kind of plays out in, in Holy Mountain later on. Yeah. But, you know, El Topo, I think, is, is, is the, the, the gateway drug for... Yeah everyone who kind of comes into his world of cinema mm. and if they like that you can keep going because where you get to with Holy Mountain is that's like if you're not ready for that yeah. it's really going to take you to a place that is is not healthy for you yeah. so but I mean you know Holy Mountain aside El Topo is just for me you know it's it's such a great film in the fact that it has such two distinct parts you've got mm. someone playing with the kind of revisionist western motif and then also playing with a story of redemption which is really often visible in all the western films but it takes it out of that kind of western setting and puts it into this kind of place and time that is not noticeable for it just kind of just hangs there in this in this space time continuum like the, the last hour and a half of El Topo is not set in any specific time. It's not set in any specific way. It just feels like it's just this complete and utter dirge of hope. Uh, and then it kind of comes up in this transcendent way at the end where you feel that, you know, history is going to be okay. You know, it might repeat itself. We've learned from this experience. So I think, you know, obviously, you know, the name of El Topo is the mole as well, mm-hmm. which is where it kind of comes from. And I just, that iconic figure of Jodorowsky being the black rider uh, going into town as the lone gunslinger and all the sort of stuff that 
informs that character and all the sort of visual baggage that audiences bring to that and to have that subverted and created into a man who's just a guy who doesn't know how to run his own life and doesn't know how to deal with the family that he's created around himself mm. and then only to have his son come back years later to kind of avenge that it is so kind of it's almost Shakespearean in, in, in a way um, I and, really and, love these first three films um, particularly Fandom and Liz because it is pure surrealism yeah and it's it his is, most yeah. purest surrealist work sure. on, on film and he did form the Panic theatre movement yes. with yeah. uh, Fernando Arabal whose play that Fando and Liz is based, based on, on. Yeah. and uh, another artist named Topor I think Roland Topor yeah. I think his name is and so you know it was sort of this post-surrealist kind of you know deconstructing surrealism and taking the piss out of surrealism but also honouring it yeah. and Fando and Liz is very much in that in that territory, but does have that poignance to it that you mentioned. Yeah. El Topo for me was like Sergio Leone on LSD. Yeah. And I think a lot of those sort of Shakespearean themes that you talk about, and yeah. a lot of the, the long-term vengeance thing, yeah. it's very Leone yeah, as well. Yeah. Um, but it's like, yeah, it's like this kind of car crash between Leone and Fellini. Yeah. 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 Right. yeah. And he's fascinated by amputees. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, I think that kind of, you know, draws into a film that comes later in his career, you know, Santa Sanjay, which mm. is, you know, the, the, the character of a, the young man who is, uh, witnesses his uh, mother's sort of amputee moment or way which is, and then he becomes her hands for her. But I think it, it, the, the, the fascination with, you know, the body and the fascination with the way that interacts with the landscape comes from his sort of fascination with the carnival mm. and the sort of way that that uh, can be a gateway for ideas and thought and new experiences mm. and I think you know the visual representation of the carnival is always the misfit and I think you know uh, Jodorowsky has always felt like a misfit in society you know he's, he's famous for saying you know like he was at university and he absolutely detested it and he couldn't do the kind of normal university run that's where he went into obviously study you know mime and, and the sort of acting arts mm. and, and then obviously going to surrealism so it's yeah, I, th I think that sort of aspect to his career is like that's why, particularly in the cult world and particularly in the sort of like offbeat cinema world, he really has thrived because, you know, he is the sort of misfit, mm. even though he created the, the genre technically. Yeah. He's never actually assigned to it. He's always been the sort of, you know, he, every film he makes, even though he has so many interconnecting themes, is so different. Yeah. So, um, and you know, Holy, Holy Mount for me is my, is my top Jodorowsky film because I just remember seeing that, and that's what sort of got me. I, Holy Mount was the first Jodorowsky film I saw. Oh wow! And um, I, I saw it um, at the Melbourne International Film Festival mm. um, quite a few years ago, and it was a new thirty-five millimeter print of it at the Capitol. And I saw it at eleven thirty at night, and it was just I the first half an hour of, of Holy Mountain for, for any listeners who have seen it, they'll know exactly what I'm talking about. It's just this absolute assault of colour, movement, sound, and you have absolutely no idea what's going on and you have no sense of place. The film never actually gives you any sort of grounding to go on until that kind of first half an hour and the the progression of the central character until he meets the alchemist, which Jodorowsky plays, that's when the actual film sort of starts properly. Yeah. That's when you sort of yeah. get the... But the first part of it is like, I have no idea where I'm going. And that sense yeah. of dis disorientation really kind of hooked me in. Mm. So, And, you know, his post-Holy Mountain was when he sort of had those three films at the start of the kind of like this massive creative surge and then... He almost felt like he had wandered into the wasteland a little bit. Well, you feel well, like yes. he would have been yes. okay if Dune had gotten made. Yes. Well, yes. that seemed the next logical step. He exactly. did. And, yeah. and if, you know, he had this idea of Dune 
uh, with Orson Welles, Salvador Dali, David Carradine. The design was going to be by H.R. Geiger, uh, Dan O'Baden, uh, Mobius. Uh, the music was going to be by Peter Gabriel and Pink Floyd. You know, he had this ambitious... There's a documentary coming out soon called Jodorowsky's June. Yep. It looks fascinating because the idea that he had... Lynch, of course, ended up making the film... If he had made that, I wonder if his career would have gone in a very different direction. I have no doubt. Mm. Uh, look, it's, it's, I think, or would the next thing have been as equally as difficult to make, you know? Like, yeah. would he have gone on to a fifth project that would have fallen over like Dune did, you know? It's, well, I feel, and this is, this is a totally kind of off-tangent theory about Dune, but I feel Dune is like that restaurant space that every restaurant that goes in there closes. <laughs> like, any filmmaker that was going to tackle Dune was bound... To fail with it, I think. Yeah. It's just so like, the fact that he didn't make it, we have this perfect version of it in our heads. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. right. I, I've actually, I was lucky enough to see Jodorowsky's doing last oh, year right. when I was at Fantastic Fest in Austin, and uh, Nicholas Ryan and Reference is, uh, who obviously, you know, is a huge fan, is interviewed in it, and it's like, apparently he was over having dinner with Jodorowsky, and Jodorowsky was like, oh, I'll show you June, and he brought out the major book, uh, production book, and right around was like, now I'm the only person who has seen June because you actually have, had to have Jodorowsky take you through <laughs> oh it. So I feel, yeah, we have this perfect film. When you see the film, um, it really gives you like, this love letter creativity and not giving up on your dreams because even though he's a little bit, uh, he, he laments being upset when Lynch's film comes out, he's also quite happy that he never actually made yeah, the film right. because he has this perfect idea of what yeah. it could have been. And hasn't it been cannibalised by Hollywood studio projects ever since? Like, don't bits of it show up in Star Wars? Some yeah. of his design concepts. In yeah. so well, Geiger things. and O'Bannon worked together on, was it Alien? Alien, Alien yeah. yeah. So um, they, they poured it over. Like, the, the Harkonnen world was apparently going to look almost exactly like the sort of alien space jockey, yeah. you know, requisite Geiger sort of world. So, uh, so we got yeah. Alien out of it. We got Alien out of it, exactly. I think we've so, gotten a lot of things and, out of it. And hey, he got to make Tusk in 1980. Yeah, so uh, Tusk and uh, the two films that followed the sort of wilderness period, uh, before the, the major wilderness period, were, were two films that Jodorowsky has purportedly disowned. Uh, could, I, could I just publicly disown them as well? Yeah. yeah. So, so they were really... Well, there's I just one like in between. Two, yeah. There's... Because Santa Sangre... Santa Sangre is uh, before Rainbow Thick, yeah, that's correct. Yeah. 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 So, 89 uh, and 90, respectively. Yeah. So you've got uh, Tusk, which is uh, kind of uh, effectively a, a, a children's tale, it looks fable, like, yeah. sight sort of thing. Um, oh, I will give it, it has tremendous poster art. Okay. Uh, but that's, yeah, that's, no, I'm willing to concede that's, that. That's really, uh, really about it. And then, of course, Santa Sanjay was almost an autobiographical film yeah, in yeah. many ways because it dealt with his sort of dislocation from his mother, his uh, difficulty connecting with his father, and also the sense of kind of displacement he had throughout his whole life. And that's... And like finding d- himself in a carnival. Finding himself in a yeah. carnival and, f- and being able to express himself creatively. Santa Sanjay is effectively Jodorowsky's only horror film mm. in many yep. ways. It is effectively psycho. You know, you have a, a young boy who is haunted by the ghost of his mother enacting vengeance on people or enacting yeah. sort of like this sick sort of murderous uh, impulse. One of his sons plays his father in Dance of Reality mm. and throughout Santa Sanjay a lot of his sons appear 
periodically yeah. as well, does, different. Doesn't two of yeah? Doesn't one of his sons play the youngest? The, the, youngest, the youngest, yeah. And then yeah. him as an adult, exactly. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, and that obviously that trend continues into dance it's reality really, as yeah. well. And but it helps that they all look so much like him. Yeah, and um, it's quite uncanny, really, yeah. from particularly the Holy Mountain era. Jodorowsky really looks like the Santa Sanjay uh, version of his uh, yeah. young son. So. But yeah, there was uh, the Rainbow Thief in 1990 before the Glut, and that was not the greatest Peter O'Toole homagery for a union that there could have been. No. no. Uh, this film was actually produced by Alexander Salkind, who oh, was wow. the uh, the guy behind the Superman. Did uh, he take his name off the film? Because uh, I didn't see it on the credits. It's actually, uh, I think it may have been. It was written by his wife at the time. The script mm-hmm. is uh, written by her. and uh, Whose wife, sorry? Uh, Salkin. Salkin's wife, yeah. yeah. So, Shonorowski came in, got the script, pretty much started to change everything, and Salkin said, if you keep changing that, you're going to get fired. Nice. I think everyone has that. Lynch has it as June, yep. where he was a, a, you know, a slave to the material, and this is the Jodorowsky slave to the material. Think, what so. material, though? Like the, yeah, it has no story. It has yeah. no story. It's, 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 it's a bunch of stuff that dogs. doesn't happen. Lots of dogs. <laughs> yeah, so, it's, yeah. uh, I mean, there are a few flourishes that are that are quite nice, but they're few and far between. There's, yeah, yeah there, there's a scene I rather enjoyed with Christopher Lee being set upon by um, six uh, busty rainbow girl prostitutes who eventually give him a heart attack. The, the only of the scene film. that made <laughs> me think it's not a kid's film. Yes. I know. Yeah. I'm sitting through Rainbow Thief going, who is this movie for? Yeah. Yeah. We've got this scene, we've got Omar Sharif, like he's in a Jacques Tati film or something, kind of bumbling around the streets and doing physical comedy, yeah. which isn't necessarily his forehand. Mm. And then we've got this bizarre kind of underground bickering kind of relationship where Peter O'Toole talks to his dead dog and it's just, it's it's, in, it's baffling. It's more baffling than his surrealist work. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's... You it know, makes just, no fucking sense. The, yeah, the, the surrealist work, you know, actually has a... a, a a kernel of truth and integrity to yes, it, whereas yes. this just feels like we want to make a kid's film, but we also want to make a surrealist film because you're Alejandro Jodorowsky, so you should make that. So it's just it just doesn't work on yeah. any level. And there's a reason why that's still to this day. I don't believe there's any digital release. No, uh, there is. So there, there is. is France. I in believe. France. There yeah. you go. Tusk, so. there's no digital release. No, no. And Tusk being slightly worse than The Rainbow Thief yeah. is more Tusk is probably of uh, one of the, the more... You know, it's a film about an elephant and, and a girl's relationship with an elephant. That's pretty much all I've got in that film. I yeah. have absolutely nothing else that I can offer. And just of, lots so. of screeching. I mean, maybe... Yeah. I mean, we got a... We saw a pretty bad VHS rip of it. Yeah. yeah. So the quality wasn't the best, but screeching elephant yeah. it makes up most of the soundtrack. Yeah. And it I just it just wanted made me want to claw my eyes and ears out. Well, the 23-year period after Rainbow Thief, yeah. it seems like, you know, to us, if you're perusing an IMDb profile, it seems like he was doing nothing. He was, uh, he did try to get some films off the ground. Son of El Topo or Sons of El Topo. With Marilyn Manson. <laughs> well, yeah, that was, it went through a lot of iterations. Yeah, it was going to be his sons at one point. One of his sons died in an accident yeah, in 95. He directed a lot of plays. He uh, conducted a wedding ceremony between Marilyn Manson and Dita Von Teese. He makes comic books. He lectures on psycho magic and psycho shamanism. He gives lectures on this. Um, He nearly made a metaphysical gangster film called King Shot in 2010, which was going to be produced by David Lynch. It was going to star Nick Nolte, Asia Argento, Marilyn Manson and Udo Kier. It was going to be set in a desert casino and discovery of a man as big as King Kong Manson. It was going to play a 300-year-old pope. 
Yeah. That actually sounds amazing. It so, sounds kind of cool. Yeah, so, but I think it's almost on the June level of it's too yeah. cool to actually exist. exist. So <laughs> I think one of the major things that happened in, in the his comic book work is astounding too. In the, I've that, heard some of it's described as some of the greatest comic books. Yeah, ever and, and obviously a lot of his work with Mobius as well um, mm. in, in the comic form is primarily the ones that are translated into English. But I think one of the major things happened in that 20th year period around 2007 was when the El Topo and the Holy Mountain got their first DVD release. Mm-hmm. And that was when the awareness of Jodorowsky really sort of came into the fold because right. they put this tremendous... Cause the, both those films are held up in tremendous rights uh, sort of With disagreements. With Alan Klein, the Beatles manager. Exactly, and it's just it, it was a really one of those things where oh, you're never going to see these films again. Mm. So they got tremendously retrofitted into a great box set, which is still available to this day, I believe. Mm. And that was where it just was a really interesting kind of gateway for people to be able to access this work. And that's when the awareness of it, I think, really sort of people started to do rep screenings of them. And it's mm. just it's just sort of gone on from there and culminated in The Dance of Reality, which is really an incredibly beautiful film. And in, in, as a you know, obviously, Jurassic's not getting any younger. I believe he's well into he's his 80s 85. now. 85. Yeah. So. This is my favourite of his films, yeah. I have to say. Oh, this is the one... It's definitely the most sweet and straightforward. Mm. Like, it's not... Like, it's like there's touches of weirdness in it and his obsessions are all over it. There is a very jarring torture sequence yes. you know, uh, towards yeah. the end. But, yeah, it's, it's incredibly autobiographical to the point that he is actually in the film narrating his own life. Yes. Which is a really interesting device and it's something that doesn't get used a lot, I think, in autobiographical mm. films. So it, it does follow a great tradition of uh, directors doing autobiographical films like, you know, Guy Madden's My Winnipeg or Agnes Varda's Beaches of Agnes, where the facts sort of secondary to yeah. how they're being imparted to you by the mm. director. Yeah. And it's such a great, like, I really, I'd admired his earlier films. This is one I really loved. Yeah. And it is beautiful. Like, I feel it was worth waiting for. Like, yeah, 23 yeah. years, you know, it was just gorgeous. Um, obviously, it's based on his autobiography as well, too, the actual yeah. uh, book. And uh, we also have here with us on my lap the spiritual journey yes. of Alejandro Jorowski by Alejandro Jorowski. <laughs> so, yeah. and, it, it, you know, I'll just, I'll just read you, Joe, on the first line. Yeah. They have written these memoirs in novelistic style. All the people, places, events, books, and quotations may or may not be real. Oh, they are. My father told me once, don't believe in anything. So um, that um, really encapsulates his career in so many ways. It's like he'll show you everything, but don't actually believe anything I'm telling you. I think and that was really quite perfectly executed in dance of reality. And it's, it's just a tremendous, uh, tremendous work. And, you know, unfortunately outside of the festival circuit hasn't had any sort of distribution wow. around the world. Mm. So um, hopefully the rise of Jodorowsky, and I think you're just seeing that now too with June, people that's getting its uh, USA theatrical release uh, as we speak. Mm-hmm. I think the time to really appreciate Jodorowsky is coming around, and I think it's going to hit that fever pitch of the new generation of filmmakers and the new generation of film viewers being introduced to him via that documentary and hopefully via Dance of Reality as well. Too. Oh, it's, it's just boundless creativity. And he's a really great filmmaker in terms mm. of being able to 
construct a shot. And when you think of the Holy Mountain and a lot of those mind-boggling sets were designed by him. And all the kind of, it's almost Derek Jarman-esque sort of set design mm. from, uh, and particularly in Holy Mountain when they go up to the top of the tower and there's that rainbow room yes. with the, you know, the camel on one side, the naked woman on the other, and, and the alchemist sitting in this middle. white top hat in the middle with like two stuffed goats next to him. That's the stuff of either incredibly amazing dreams or really horrible nightmares. Yeah. And I think that's the line that Jodorowsky really toes quite well. Like, you know, these films are terrifying to watch, but also beautiful. Like, there's no other way to put it. Like, they're just... You look at those shots and you're like, that is an absolutely immaculately composed shot. And I'm yeah. glad you mentioned Leone as well, too, because I think he has a lot of similar sensibilities to Leone. More so for me in Holy Mountain, because he's dealing with the scope sort of frame. Yeah. I just think Holy Mountain is one of the most incredibly photograph films that you'll be lucky to see and mm-hmm. definitely see it at the cinema if you can. They're visceral experiences and there's something that you can't really articulate why you like it while you're watching it. You either go with it and you get swept up with it yep. or if you don't want to go on the ride, you kind of get off and you, you go for another filmmaker. But he is one of the most sort of engrossing visceral filmmakers that I've certainly ever seen and um, he's just a really lovely guy to listen to talk to. He's just got a really kind of almost Cronenbergian in a way who just kind of will lull you into this sense of you feel smarter having heard his voice. Mm. And he's a man who said of his own films, most directors make films with their eyes, I make films with my balls. <laughs> I love that quote. Because it, it says this is much about how he views his own work as much as his own work itself. Well, yeah, at the recent Sitges Film Festival uh, in Spain, he accepted his Lifetime Achievement Award completely naked. <laughs> Brilliant. So, and I think you saw those balls in all the glory. In all the, so, yeah. And you often do see them in most of his works too, yeah, I think. Yes. So, um, would, I don't recognise him when he's clothed, basically, exactly. after his films. Um, and we wouldn't have it any other way. No. <laughs> well, Zach, thank you so much for joining yep. us. Always a pleasure. Always a good idea to talk about Jodorowsky any time of the day. So yes. thanks for having me. We've all, we all feel enlightened and uh, full of psycho magic. So thank you very much. Thank you, sirs. And we'll see the rest of you next month. Uh, she touched my pee-pee, Steve.